Welcome to The Exam Room. I'm your host, Brian Vardabedian. In this episode, we explore empathy, a subject that I love thinking about in the context of technology and change. And my guest is Dr. Brian Goldman, an emergency physician and author of the new book, The Power of Kindness. His book is a journey of self-discovery and empathy, and we touch upon some of the most interesting elements learned during his journey. Dr. Goldman is not just an ER physician, he's also a medical journalist and host of a popular radio program on Canada's CBC Radio 1 called White Coat, Black Art. As he describes, he has made a successful career pulling back the curtain on the world of medicine by getting frontline doctors and nurses to speak candidly about their work, and he clearly does that in this episode. There are so many interesting facets to this discussion that I'm going to just let you jump right in. I hope you enjoy it. For most consumers, the search for a healthcare provider is a frustrating maze of bewildering choices and unanswered questions. And they really want to hear what other patients have to say in order to make a decision with confidence. With Loyal's Empower Solution, you have the tools to do just that. Empower your patients, the patient, and provide a solution. Maximizing star ratings while introducing deeper insights into what patients really are saying about their experience. You could sort, approve, and publish patient reviews of physicians, services, and even practices using some of the intelligent features like auto-approval and syntax highlighting. To learn more, visit them online at loyalhealth.com. So welcome to the exam room, Dr. Goldman. Happy to be here, Brian. And please call me Brian. Okay, I'll call you Brian. That sounds great. Um, one of the things that's been so great about starting a podcast is my ability to have an extended conversation with people who I've known for a number of years, but really haven't had the chance to chat with. And so it's it's really great to have you here. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. I feel exactly the same way as you do. So your new book is The Power of Kindness from HarperCollins, and it's just out. So tell me what this is about. What's the, what's the basic premise of uh, The Power of Kindness? The basic premise of the of the power of kindness is is my personal search for empathy and kindness in the world and mostly in in myself. You know, when I was a three year old, I remember going to a summer camp. It was a day camp, not far from from the home, the first home that I lived in, and I was referred to. I remember one of the counselors said to uh, my mom that I was a breath of fresh air. So that's that's how I started out and. Somewhere in the middle of my career as an emergency physician, uh, I wouldn't say I had a nasty streak, but but uh, I realized that I could be unkind, and uh, that story kind of uh, crystallized in one particular incident when I I saw a woman who was in the end stages of a degenerative disease, and uh, her family brought her to the emergency department. Uh, she could no longer speak. They were having trouble feeding her. It, it came at a time when palliative care and uh, and home care wasn't as well developed as it is today. And and this is something that emergency physicians know a lot about that 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 family members would bring a loved one to the emergency department to be admitted for social reasons, not not for medical reasons. I assessed her top to bottom. She wasn't dehydrated. She wasn't uh, coughing. She didn't. I didn't think she was aspirating. I didn't think she had pneumonia. She didn't have a fever, and yet her family couldn't take her. Couldn't take her home. They were they they were at their wits' end. This was a very turbulent time in the life of a family. But I wasn't into that at all. What I was thinking about was my own distress, my own discomfort, having to make a referral to an internist who was probably going to be a bit sour about this admission, and uh, I I did it. And uh, as often happens, you know, there was very little priority placed on on this woman's admission because she wasn't uh, in the same kind of medical need as others who might have had sepsis or meningitis or pneumonia or congestive heart failure. And so it took a long time for the internist to see the patient. And often as the eMERGE physician, you're in the middle between, you know, the consultant and the family. And they, they kept asking me questions. Uh, like when's the consult gonna gonna take place? You know when is my mother gonna get a bed? And along the way, one of the daughters asked me, "Did you actually make the referral?" And I snapped at her, 
And that is unlike me. I don't usually snap at people, but I did. And eventually the internist saw the woman. She was admitted to hospital. And uh, about a couple months later, she passed away. And a little while after that, the uh, husband of the woman wrote me this letter, which I received. And the letter basically started to talk about um, his wife, his late wife, and uh, in a very, very heartfelt way, you know, what kind of a woman she was. And uh, uh, the husband accused me of being unkind. I think physicians uh, can accept that, that some patients think they're incompetent uh, and, they, and they feel that way because they know that, that um, there's a good chance that a, that a patient or a family member doesn't know competence when they see it. They know a good demeanor, but they don't know competence. But when they tell you you're unkind, as this husband said to me, that hurt because it was true. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you and I are probably both at the same stage of our careers. And I think um, like you, uh, I'm kind of going through these issues of self-discovery. Um, I lost a mother like uh, like you did. And that whole process really changes the way you see things. Um, one of the things that that I love about the power of kindness is that it reads so easily and you take the reader kind of on this journey of self-discovery that you just described. Um, and this is a quote from your book. You say, this is a journey into empathy as witnessed through my eyes. I'm your tour guide. Sometimes I'm the guinea pig for the test of empathy. Sometimes a vessel for you to experience and learn how to be kinder in a world that could use a bit more kindness. So this issue of a of of a of a journey is really what I felt by reading your book. It it just the the narrative just it's it's just a, a long story of your exploration through technology and personal experiences and and such. And um, so I loved it. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about just some basics in terms of definitions. Uh, you know, I have talked about empathy uh, through my career and not exactly knowing really what it meant. And so when we talk about empathy, what do we, what do we mean? Well, we're talking about three components of empathy. Some people think there's five, but, but let's, let's, let's settle on three. The first component of empathy is affective or emotional empathy. And, you know, basically that's what a mother feels when she's wincing uh, as her child gets uh, sutures or uh, a needle uh, or, or, get, or gets a, a fracture uh, reduced, uh, which is probably one of the reasons why, why family members don't like being in the room at, at a time like that, although that's changed uh, in recent years to some extent at least. I would say that emotional empathy or affective empathy uh, is really an issue of too much of a good thing not being very good at all for, for uh, people in health professions. You know, we don't want our surgeons to feel the pain of their patients. Uh, we certainly don't want them to be, to be grimacing and wincing uh, with their patients dealing with postoperative pain. Now, of course, we can control postoperative pain, but to the extent to which we can't, you know, you can imagine that if a surgeon uh, was was burdened by the postoperative pain of his or her patients, you know, that person would probably quit in a very short period of time. You know, there's also an interesting concept that I came across, and that is emotional contagion. And that is, that really is too much of a good thing. That's people literally feeling what somebody else is feeling. And, and we all have our weaknesses, you know, our, our challenges. And one of mine is that anxious patients make me feel anxious. And, and sometimes that anxiety can be unbearable. And, you know, I've done a lot of soul searching of what it's about. Um, I, I think that, you know, sometimes their anxiety, I feel as if their anxiety is directed towards me, as if, as if they think they're suffering from a life-threatening illness and they've only got hours to spare and, and I'm the wrong guy to make the diagnosis. Or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to persuade them. I'm trying to give them the facts about, about radiation from a CT scan and they're not buying a word of it. So, so part of that anxiety is self-doubt, that I'm doubting my ability to, to, to reassure them, to persuade them. And so I find I'm burdened by their anxiety. So, so that's, that's one component of empathy. 
that is not what we're talking about when it comes to empathy in healthcare. The second component is what we are talking about, and that's cognitive empathy. Cognitive empathy is basically being able to use your imagination to put yourself in the position of somebody else and act accordingly. And, you know, some of it's in, a lot of it's intuitive, uh, but some of it is, is it, certainly it's natural. Um, on my, on my travels, I had a brain scan and, and I spoke to some of the top neuroscientists in the world. Christian Kaiser's developed something called mirror neurons. He wasn't the first wave of scientists to, to uncover mirror neurons, but he was part of the second wave. And basically, these are brain cells. These are neurons that, that serve two functions at the same time. They light up when you perform an action, and they also light up when you witness somebody else performing an action. Um, and, and there are various forms of this. Um, when you taste something awful, these neurons light up. And when you witness somebody else grimacing because they're tasting something awful, the same neurons light up. Um, not everybody agrees with this, but the neuroscientists I spoke to believe that these mirror neurons are the seat of empathy and, and, and they're inside the brain. But cognitive empathy is the second component. And then we want everybody, we want anybody involved in customer service to, to have cognitive empathy, to put themselves in the position of the customer or the patient, the person they're trying to help and act accordingly. The third component of empathy is something called affective concern, which is basically the get up and go that you and I and paramedics and surgeons and social workers and pharmacists are supposed to have when we get up and get out of bed in the morning to go to work, to run to the fire, not away from it, to run to the resuscitation room or the intensive care unit, not away from it. And, and we want uh, health professionals to have that in abundance. So those basically are the three components of what we mean by empathy. So Brian, when we think about empathy, or when I think about empathy, I guess I'm really thinking about cognitive empathy. Learning about these three kinds of empathy was really interesting. I mean, cognitive empathy is really that ability to see or really understand what a person is going through or, or feel what a person is going through. Is that right? That's right. And, and it's the ability, for instance, to walk into a cubicle in the emergency department at five o'clock in the morning and not just walk up to the patient and you know, start asking questions. You're tired. You're dead tired. You've been up all night. But noticing that there's a spouse there who's over the age of 80 who's been, who's been up all night and imagining, wow, they must be really tired. Or uh, to, to notice the middle-aged children uh, and, uh, you know, who, who, who are exhausted at five o'clock in the morning. And, and, you know, there was a time when I couldn't imagine that at all. In fact, there was a time, Brian, when I would be intimidated by a large family. I'd think that, oh my God, my first thought would be, they're going to pepper me with questions. They're going to find out what I don't know. They're going to, you know, they're, they're, they're going to, they're going to be like, like, you know, like a, like an interview for a job where you're facing off against a committee uh, and, and you have to answer all their questions and, uh, and they'll be picking, you know, they'll be, they'll be kind of synchronizing with each other and, and, and all against you. It's, it sounds paranoid, but I think a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, healthcare providers feel that way about large families. It wasn't until many years later when, when my sister and I were at the bedside of our parents, my parents were, you know, between the two of them were admitted 14 times to hospital. And, and, and then I knew what it was like to wait all night. I knew what it was like to be up at 530 in the morning when finally the eMERGE physician came in to ask how my mother was doing or my dad was doing. So, so um, yeah, you're right. Uh, you begin to see what it's like to be them and and that's the thing that is often missing in healthcare for reasons that I talk about early on in the book but as you 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 very quickly grasped this book is not a book about empathy in healthcare it's a book about my personal search for empathy but my search outside the hospital for role models that I could learn from so you like to use the term kindness uh to describe the way we relate to people so Kindness and empathy. Why did you choose kindness? Well, one reason, to be perfectly honest, there's a lot of really good books on empathy and not as many on kindness. So I was trying to, I was trying to do something. I was desperately trying to do something to distinguish my book from all of the other wonderful books written by people much smarter than I. But there is something different about kindness. 
kindness gets closer to a state of synchronization between me and the person I'm being kind to or the person who's being kind to me. Um, Kindness is not just niceness. It is using your intuition and whatever whatever else uh, is available to to provide a special gesture to somebody and and it's exactly the right thing that they need at that moment and you're the right person to deliver it you may you may believe in serendipity you may believe that 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 you know what a coincidence brought these two people together but you know if you if you peer inside their brains if you do a functional mri you're going to discover that they have similar brain patterns at that same moment and and you know I, we've all had moments when somebody has been especially kind to us uh i can remember when about 20 years ago when my partner tamara was having a miscarriage and uh i was en route to cincinnati to do a story for a television show that i was that i was working on i i i, w- I felt so sorry to be there i needed to be at her side i felt lost i felt sad I felt disappointed, angry, and all of these conflicted feelings. And and this was before 9-11. And I can remember uh, the flight attendant walking down the aisle, taking a look at me. And she crouched down and, and said to me that the pilot had invited me into the cockpit to watch the landing. Now, that's something you can't do today, but you could do wow. it back then. Before 9-11, you could do it. And I started to weep, like it, like all the tension that I'd been feeling up to that point in time. You know, I, I couldn't scream at the gods and say, "Why did you have to do this?" And uh, and I wept. I wept because it, it was as if this flight attendant and that pilot were giving me permission to be a kid again. You know, when you're a when you're a child and everything's possible, there are no disappointments, or the disappointments are little ones. There's birthdays. You know, there's there's birthday presents and Santa Claus, if you believe in Santa Claus and, and all the wonderful things that, that can happen. I got to be that that kid again for a few minutes and and sitting in that cockpit, it kind of took me away from from, you know, real life just long enough to to gather myself. And then when I came back home to be a support to Tamara. So I love this concept of synchrony that you describe in The Power of Kindness. You describe it as kind of a a matching rhythmic behavior between people. And you say that synchrony is the super highway that leads to connection and kindness. Um, really love that concept. Um, you know, I, I found most recently the most transformative thing for me as a clinician, the thing that's changed things for me and allowed me to kind of go to that next level of synchrony has been mindfulness. I think yes. in the early part of my career, I was not present in the exam room, if that makes any sense. Yes. Um, you know, I would, I would be there and I could, I could go through the motions and I can go through the motions now, but when I'm really there, that natural synchrony happens and my natural empathy comes out. Does that make sense? And not only is that true and correct, you know, it's great that you can feel that way, but, but when a, a therapist and their client are are reaching a state of synchron, synchronicity they match speech patterns you know mm-hmm. so if one is speaking with up talk the other one speaks in up talk uh they match their hand gestures and 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 there there's evidence that they have a stronger client therapist relationship that is more productive than people uh who aren't reaching each other in that way now, Brian, it's an interesting, you know, interesting thing that you're talking about in your own personal development. Have you found that to be kinder, to to have greater empathy for patients, you have to relinquish some of that power that we often use therapeutically, but sometimes hide behind, you know, the white coat, the whole, the whole kind of that power imbalance that occurs between between physicians and their patients. Yo, absolutely. I mean, I think we really have to see ourselves on a more equal level with our with our uh, our patients for sure. And it's that's something I've I've really gotten quite good at over the past few years. But this issue of presence, um, 
really has been transformative to me. But but yeah, you can't get to you can't get to being present or connecting or having that synchrony if you really have that power differential going on. So, Brian, do you think that we are in a crisis of apathy right now? Do you think that things are worse now in terms of our ability to be empathic as providers? Yes, I think we are. And and you know, before I get to some of the reasons why I think we're in that, I love that you just said apathy. Because, you know, I asked a lot of people, what's the opposite of, you know, what's the opposite of, you know, the antonym of empathy? And, and you know, people, you know, kindness, it's meaningless, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it, but, but really, it, uh, you know, I interviewed a whole group of, of experts in something called schadenfreude, you know, which is, which is taking pleasure in somebody else's pain. Right. You know, people who are devoted sports fans know a lot about, about schadenfreude, you know, right, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs and the, and the Boston Bruins uh, have certainly experienced that, you know, the New York Yankees and the and the Boston Red Sox, right. bitter oh, yeah. rivals that have experienced that. Well, Mina Sakara uh, from uh, the University of Pennsylvania, more recently at Harvard, she I interviewed her for a chapter on Schadenfreude, and I I actually didn't include it in the book because the book was too long. That'll be for another book, but but she was the first person to 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 make me aware that the opposite the antonym of empathy is apathy and and i'm with you you know we are certainly in a crisis of apathy uh, right now um, not just in healthcare but but in all walks of life and i think there are many reasons for that in no particular order speed i think that you know that presence that you're talking about takes time you know and maybe it's 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 not a lot of time. It doesn't take you an hour of preparation to center yourself. Um, if you if you submit yourself, if you kind of kind of, you know, uh, if you if you just let yourself experience uh, that sense of presence, it doesn't take an hour to reach that state. It's a letting go. It's not a it's not a grabbing on for dear life. But but I think a lot of us are feeling time pressure. Uh, we're overloaded with responsibilities. We're overloaded with tasks that are that are you know ultimately meaningless. Passwords, password changes, uh, procedures. There's constantly new procedures for everything. There's there's new rules about about taxes. There's new rules about citizenship. There's new rules about the road. There's new rules, of course, about medicine. You know, in in, in healthcare, I've got you know in the hospital, I've got five different passwords, and they're always changing. Do I remember them? And 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 you know, I'm I'm constantly feeling as if I'm running behind. So with every every time I I, I walk into a room, I'm apologizing for being late. That puts me in a one down position where I'm getting defensive. I already have a reason for being defensive in that in in that room. And and one of the most important things I learned about empathy is that you cannot be empathetic if you're self preoccupied. You can't. And I learned right. that from many different people, but it was intuitively obvious, and yet I, I didn't grasp just how often I was self-preoccupied, either with self-doubt about, about mistakes, about being late, about you know being inadequate here, inadequate there. And I'm not saying every health professional feels that way, but I think more feel that way than we want to admit. And I think a lot of us become health professionals because we feel a, a strong sense of shame for the mistakes that we make, and we want to become healers to kind of indemnify ourselves against future mistakes. It's an insurance policy. You know, if I'm a martyr in healthcare, yeah, then then please forgive me if I make a mistake, even though I won't be able to forgive myself. In that state of shame, uh, as Brene Brown has said, you know, you don't want to expose yourself to other people. You want to hide. In fact, you want to, you know, you, you, many people, when they've made their worst mistake, you know, in the emergency department or in the ICU or in the operating room, they wish that a big hole would open up in the earth and swallow them up. Right. And, and in that state of shame, it is impossible to empathize with others. You can't because, because you know, to use your imagination to put yourself in the place of the family that's now bereaved. Um, is just too much for people who are shame-based to bear. 
So those are some of the reasons, you know, we want to throw in a bit of social media and and what does social media do? It, it's not the social media that causes uh, that causes us to become apathetic, uh, but it can sure help to desensitize us just because of the sheer volume of news that's coming into our feed every day. You can't help but be desensitized by the number of tragic things, awful things that 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 we're exposed to, embarrassing things that that don't involve us. But but because they're brought to our feed, you know, our Facebook feed, our Twitter feed, our Instagram feed, they become important to us. We think they're important to us because they've been flashed in front of us as a headline. And, and you know, I think it's no accident that we have higher rates of anxiety and self-preoccupation among uh, teenage uh, students and college students. And, and, you know, certainly smarter people than I have 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 pinned the time, the tipping point for that to the time when more than 50% of the population owned smartphones so that they were constantly bombarded with these messages on a minute-to-minute basis. Hey, everybody. This is Reed Smith. And this is Chris Boyer. And we are co-hosts on a show called Touchpoint, which is a podcast that's dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, not only for just hospitals, but health systems and physician practices. In every episode, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and other things that are impacting the healthcare industry today. And while you listen to this show, we would certainly love you to check out ours. All you have to do is swing on over to touchpoint.health for more information, and also some of the other shows that are featured on the Touchpoint Media Network. A recent study by University of Indiana psychologist Sarah Conrath found empathy among today's college students has declined by about 40% compared to their peers 20 or 30 years ago. Let's talk about medical students and what happens to a young learner during that period of training when they they develop that that crass attitude towards patients. After reading your book, I, I, I learned that some of this stuff is hardwired or the failure to be empathic is hardwired, but... I can't help but think that that some of this is really learned behavior from our seniors, right? Well, Brian, you know, I think I think one of the major focuses of my book, you know, my journey was to find out how much of this is nature and how much is nurture. And right. you know, there was a recent study by Varen Warner who works with Simon Baron Cohen at at Cambridge University, and you know, Simon Baron Cohen being the cousin of Sasha Baron Cohen, and I'm sure he never hears the end of that. But empathy is probably a bit of nature and a lot of nurture, and and I think that you know, I think the hardwiring is there. But I also think that it's possible for you to be acculturated to ignore the opportunities to be empathic uh, towards other people, to, to use your imagination to try to figure out what they're going through. And, you know, you talk about medical students. What is it about about what's their experience in medical school? There is no question that if, you know, if you, if you want idealism, talk to a first-year medical student. Before they get into medical school, they're not cynics when they arrive. They are cynics. They may be cynics, not always, but they may be cynics when they finish med school and certainly halfway through their residency. That's really when it starts to happen. And and I think there's so many different possible reasons for that. One of them is that they're exhausted. They're sleep deprived. You know, they are uh, working harder than they've ever worked in their entire lives. Uh, and and you know I'm sure you've heard all the aphorisms that 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 I've heard of. Nobody is smarter than a med- than a senior medical student, and nobody's dumber than an intern or a first year resident. Right. And 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 that's where you you know you, you begin to see where you are in the pecking order. And and you know that that sense that that you know I, th- I think maybe it begins with with entering medical school as the smartest person in your you know in your class of pre med. Uh, cohort uh, students, but but and then discovering that you're not the smartest by a long shot once you get into your first year of medical school, and and that you may go through four years of med school without getting very much praise, and and uh, you know in residency as well, you may find that you've got a, attending physicians and surgeons who are very quick to point out your mistakes and and not so quick to praise you. Uh, in fact, you know, I think I think that it, I, I I can remember mentors who who would have labeled somebody who wanted praise as overly needy and dependent and clingy, 
And 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 so I th- I think there is a certain amount of emotional abuse that goes into into training. I think part of that is that we view empathy as a soft skill that you dole out when your clinical acumen and your surgical skill isn't up to scratch. And, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche, a bit of a false dichotomy, you know, that the better you are as a, as a physician, the smarter you are, uh, the slicker you are, that you know, with, with hand-eye coordination, that, that the less empathic you have to be. I don't think that's true. You know, some of, uh, some of the best and brightest also happen to be the most empathic. But, but if you're surrounded by role models who aren't doing a very good job of taking care of their own emotional needs, isn't it any wonder that you're having difficulty taking care of the emotional needs of your patients? Uh, right. and, and, you know, I think that let's not forget exposure to, to very sad situations, uh, to traumatic situations. You know, this, this past week, uh, a week ago, we had the Toronto van attack where uh, a man now in custody and 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 who will be uh, going up for trial for attempted murder and murder used a van a rental van to run over about 25 people uh, killed 10 and and 14 were hospitalized and and some of them with with really grievous injuries and and you know there isn't a lot that's going to be said about the paramedics who rescued, who, who brought those people to the hospital, including the injured and the dead, and, and the uh, uh, healthcare workers who took care of them in the emergency department from the orderlies, the service assistants, to the, to, the, to the volunteers, to the nurses, to the physicians and the surgeons, the trauma surgeons, that, that, that they were exposed to one trauma you know, after another. Um, I'm thinking as well about Dr. Kevin Menace, uh, who was the emergency physician on duty at Sunrise Hospital in Las Vegas on the night of the Vegas shootings. And he was the right guy in the right place at the right time because he knew his ballistics and he knew his trauma. and, And they saved so many people, but they also had to uh, assess in 20 seconds or maybe 30 seconds if we're generous, you know, whether uh, a patient who was arriving from that awful carnage, that awful scene in Las Vegas, uh, whether they were going to get a full bore resuscitation or not. And, 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 you know, they would walk away from that traumatized by the experience, not to mention, you know, thinking about the, the screams of family members. You know, the screams, the yep. wails of grief from family members. And, and so let's not forget that, that health professionals are witnesses to, to great trauma and pain. And, and that is something, if they don't deal with it, if they don't have this thing that we call resilience or an outlet to talk about it, to process it, they're at high risk of PTSD and burnout. And those are conditions that that lead to a, a a dramatic reduction in empathy. So this is the epidemic of burnout that we discussed in episode one with Dr. Sasha Shilcut. Um, when we achieve this level of disconnection, it's impossible to be empathic. Absolutely correct. Uh, you can't. Um, in part, you know, and 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 it may not be burnout. It may be something else that we call compassion fatigue. You know, my friend and colleague Francoise Mathieu. Uh, at Queen's University has done a lot of work on compassion fatigue. And that is, you know, what is the first most awful conversation, you know, your first experience as a family member with somebody who, who is deceased? It might be the emergency physician's 100th or 200th or 500th. God forbid, by the way, because, because you know, I don't know about you, but but there are times in my career when I thought I've only got so many of these conversations in me mm-hmm. because because they take as much, they take a lot out of me. I'm not comparing my my grief and pain to to what uh, to what patients and family members are experiencing. But but when you have that feeling, well, it's not a feeling; it's an absence of feeling that you can't really bear another conversation like that, or or you can't rise up to the level of concern that you might have had after the first time you had that conversation because it's the one hundredth time. Then you're probably suffering from compassion fatigue, and and um, you know now your your ability to to empathize and with with a family member is is greatly impaired because you know we have to be thinking. 
we have to have awe for the fact that that family, you're about to tell them something that will change their lives forever. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're not present for them, then you shouldn't be doing it. You shouldn't be the one having that conversation. So, Brian, is it really possible to teach a student to be empathic? Um, I don't know if it is. I can tell you that there is a plethora of courses that purport to teach empathy. Uh, and, and I certainly wouldn't be sure that it's, that it's, that it's possible or, or, or let alone easy to teach empathy to, uh, to people. Um, I, I, I can tell you, first of all, that if you're a member of the dark triad, if you're a narcissist, if you have a narcissistic personality disorder or a Machiavellian personality disorder or a psychopathic personality disorder, you can't teach them empathy. They don't have the brain circuitry for empathy. You know, I touched on that in the chapter, the dark triad. And, and, uh, you know, I met, uh, a neuroscientist, uh, Derek Mitchell, who studies, uh, people with, uh, psychopathy and, and he was the first one to make me aware that people who have psychopathy, psychopaths, um, are, are unable to process what are called secondary signals from, uh, from, for instance, uh, a child who's fallen off a bicycle, who's crying, you know, you're, you know, the psych- you're running, you're running to catch a bus or, or, a, or a, a train or a subway, uh, a metro, and, and it's for an important job interview, you're really focused on that. Uh, you want to get there, but the psychopath uh, but, but, but along the way, you, uh, you notice that a child, uh, has fallen off a tricycle and is, and is crying and you can see the hurt look on her face. She's screaming. You can hear the screams, you can see the blood and you're taking in this information and now you're, you're weighing, can I change my plans? How, you know, how am I, can I, can I tell them I'm going to be late for the appointment for the interview? Well, if you have, if you, if you're normal, you take in that information and you you make decisions. Empathy is always a choice between your interests and the and and somebody else's interests. But if you are a psychopath, you cannot take in process that information. You're not hearing the screams of the child. You're not seeing them crying. You're not seeing the blood. You're not taking in the information from that picture. And so it's interesting that person who who is a psychopath now is is more like somebody who's suffering from color blindness than somebody who's evil. So that's a bit of a that's a bit of a of a sidetrack. You know, if you are a psychopath, a narcissist or or a machiavellian, you are uh, you are limited and challenged in the empathy department and there's no teaching that's going to change that. For everybody else, there are lots of courses on empathy and a lot of them are 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 provided for medical students and residents these days and oncologists for instance. You know, they some of them are didactic, some of them are role playing, and I think that that they may be effective at teaching communication skills, listening skills, but none of them are going to unpack the internal distress that you're feeling about being stressed or having problematic relationships with your colleagues, or maybe you're fretting about a mistake you've made, or maybe you're shame based. None of these courses are going to address the core issues that have reduced empathy in healthcare, and neither will they re- will they address the core issues that have reduced empathy in the rest of the world. So you know, and 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 I I think as well for 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 a more informed opinion, let's ask Mary Gordon. Mary Gordon is an educator, a teacher who developed a program called Roots of Empathy. This is an award-winning program available in 14 countries. Uh, they've, they've taught uh, more than a million students. And the way it works is in an age-appropriate fashion between grade one, the, the first grade and the eighth grade, um, kids sit around on the floor in a circle and meet a baby starting at the age of five months of age and his or her parents. And, and basically, the baby and the parents are the teachers. And there's a facilitator there. And, and, you know, the, 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 the baby's emotions, um, are, are the, the laboratory for the students to notice 
you know, what the baby's going through emotionally. So basically, it's giving the kids an opportunity to see a baby who's frustrated and starts to cry or maybe needs changing and starts to cry. And 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 so this is a wonderful opportunity for for students who maybe have never seen a baby in a loving and attached relationship, what that looks like, what it feels like. Now, I asked Mary Gordon, can you teach empathy? Is your course teaching empathy? And she said, sadly, no, it isn't. Uh, we can catch kids in the act of making a comment like, oh, that baby is frustrated. Maybe that baby's frustrated because he tried to reach for the toy and he fell over. Uh, and, and, and that is the beginning of developing an ability to or developing your own natural ability to take the perspective of of uh, of of another uh, person, in this case, a baby, but she does not believe you can teach empathy, and and if she doesn't, I certainly don't. So that's kind of reassuring to hear, because obviously the the road of medical education is strewn with the skeletons of those who've tried to teach empathy, and I think that the inherent capacity to connect with another person can't necessarily be taught. Uh, of course, barring the sociopaths that you discuss in the power of kindness or sociopathy, I believe it can be drawn out of someone or facilitated perhaps. Uh, maybe it could be modeled. Uh, and I think we can facilitate the, the natural exposure of what's in our heart, but it's it's not easily done. Uh, for, the read, for the readers or the listeners rather who are going to read this book, and I strongly recommend it, uh, Dr. Goldman undergoes functional MRI as well as some of the personality testing to determine where he fits in this whole empathy continuum. And the results are very interesting. I'm going to leave it at that and let the let the listeners go and read your book and, and find those answers. But it was it was great fun reading that. Thanks. Yeah. And and they're going to be in for some spicy surprises uh, as as as, yes. as you alluded to. There were some surprises in how I incorporate that information into who I am and, you know, am I a kind soul, which is what I was trying to answer. Right in the book, uh, I hope makes for some interesting reading. So following up on this issue, maybe of burnout and fatigue, it was interesting to read that using functional MRI, nurses from Nova Scotia have a diminished capacity to respond to the pain of their patients. So do we, do we unlearn empathy or is it, is it empathy fatigue or are we burnt out or what, what is, what's causing these nurses from Nova Scotia to have a diminished capacity to respond? Well, that's a really good question, and and really the researchers, you know, Philip Jackson uh, and others uh, who are are working on this intriguing hypothesis, uh, are 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 at the stage of trying to postulate what the you know what the possible reasons might be, but you know if you, we use our imagination, um, you can you can speculate that some of it may be burnout, some of it may be seeing so many patients in pain. That, that we find it difficult. Uh, you know, we've seen so many of them that we find it very hard to tell the difference between one and another. You know, I, I think that, you know, in, in basically the way the experiment worked, I was having my uh, functional MRI as I looked at a monitor on the ceiling in the MRI suite. And, and in very short order, I would see flashed before me the faces of patients in pain. And I had to use a joystick to to score it on a scale of zero to five, and uh, and and they would be gone in a few seconds, about four to six seconds, and then I'd be on to the next one. So there was a time pressure to the to the to the uh, to the assessment uh, to the testing, and and but if we start to speculate. It may be that that I've seen so many patients in pain by that point that that uh, I have you know many comparisons you know and and mm -hmm. I'm not going to uh, score everybody who winces at a high level of pain because I have a lot of perspective and I know that some of them who wince are gesturing a lot are expressing themselves but they may not need as much opioid or or other kinds of pain relievers uh, you know part of it may be that I'm afraid that if I score patients too highly I'm going to feel an obligation to give them opioids and I know we have this terrible opioid crisis um, or it may be that I'm burnt out and and so these are some of the hypotheses uh, that the researchers are going to have to work on, but this is this, and, and and not only that, but I think the finding is going to have to be confirmed in other experiments. But it sure is interesting, and it might well explain the diminished empathy that some health professionals feel in their mid career. 
And so Christian Kaisers, a neuroscientist from the Netherlands who happens to be mapping empathy, has suggested that there may even be advantages to turning off empathy in certain circumstances. Is that really true? Yeah, he uh, he hypothesizes that surgeons in particular might have an off switch. And 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 let me let me back up by saying that at That's the crazy an empathy off switch. Empathy is a choice. It's always a choice. It's a choice between my interests and yours, between my family's interests and your family's weighing interests. And and it, it can be even more uh, sophisticated than that. You know, if I help you, will it help my career? Uh, and 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 you know, is there a strategic or tactical value in 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 helping somebody else? Uh, and 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 he believes that surgeons have an off switch that they can switch it off in the operating room. And to me, it makes perfect intuitive sense because if they didn't, uh, you know, let's think about, about the savagery that is operating on somebody cracking open their chest and doing it with purpose, not just to save, you know, not impulsively to try to save their lives, but, but to do it as part of a, of an orchestrated, uh, procedure. And, and of course, surgeons listening to us would be horrified to hear that. But you know what? I think it makes a lot of sense. And, and he would, as a neuroscientist, Christian Kaisers would be trying to figure out where is the off switch. And, and, you know, is there some relationship between that and psychopaths? You know, it, it would be really interesting to do a functional MRI of a surgeon when they have the, when, when their empathy is switched on and when it's switched off to see if there's a significant change in the way in what parts of the brain light up. You know, that needs to be done though. Let me just finish up here, Brian, by talking a little bit about technology and technology's role in the future. Um, and how that relates to empathy. Uh, when you look at the trajectory of medicine and the role that technology is playing in diagnostics and therapeutics, what do you see as the future of the doctor-patient relationship and the role of empathy given all the technology that's now replacing a lot of what we used to do with our eyes and ears and hands? Well, that's a really important philosophical question. And, and you know, I see you know, there's, I see two routes, you know, I see we're in the, we're at a fork in the road. And I think the, the whole shame and, and uh, issue is, a, is, is a, is a bigger one than technology, but, but let's, let's talk about technology because it's important. Um, I think that technology in healthcare is a double-edged sword. If it automates a lot of unimportant tasks, relatively unimportant tasks and leaves us free to to spend more time being mindful with the patient uh, in the examining room, in the cubicle, in the emergency department, in the intensive care unit, then that's great. To the extent to which it takes our focus away from patients and families, then I think it does the opposite. And and you know, all of us who have dealt with software programs, you know, the computer, the ever-present monitor, computer monitor that's in the examining room with you and the patient, now the third character in the in in the room, the third actor in the room. If you have to spend your time staring at the monitor, you're missing all, you know, to, to try to deal with the software needs, you know, the passwords and 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 having to to think like a computer or like a computer programmer instead of the intuitive way that human beings relate to patients, then you're taking your eyes off the patient and you're missing a wealth of really, really important information. Um, but that's facile. You know, virtual reality, I think that virtual reality um, as, as I, as I talk about in the, in the book, there's a chapter called games of empathy in which I talk about the potential of virtual reality to, 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 to increase our empathic concern for other people, to motivate us to, to contribute to charity, uh, to, for instance, to know what it's like to at least have a, a, a taste of what it's like to, to be in a refugee camp uh, or in an Indian residential school in Canada, you know, where we've had our Truth and Reconciliation Commission dealing with, with, with the plight of, of indigenous people who were forced into these, these awful, abusive, emotionally and sexually abusive uh, schools. So, so technology can, can enable us uh, as healthcare providers to, to gain practice, to gain empathy for other patients. Um, technology through deep learning will improve our diagnostic skills by automating and by transforming the process of diagnosis. 
um, if and when we ever reach the point where where a computer can 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 assist us uh, as we uh, you know as we attempt to diagnose patients, and and hopefully it'll leave us more time to focus on the patient to actually listen with that still small voice that I still find necessary if I'm going to make a diagnosis. If I'm and and often it's a leap of intuition rather than a you know a, a an algorithmic hierarchical kind of uh, approach. So, so let's, let me, let me, so, so, so what do I think? Do I think that, that the technology is going to be good for empathy or bad? Let me be an optimist. Let me say that we're hardwired for empathy. And, and I think if we use technology wisely, it will assist us in forging better relations with our patients. I agree. I think this whole issue of, uh, robotics, which you, you handle beautifully in, uh, in your book is really forcing us to rethink what constitutes a human connection. We're, we're being confronted with these issues of what makes us so special or what makes us so unique, right? Absolutely. And, and I can tell you, you know, I learned many things from the roboticists I met in, in uh, Japan. Um, I think that, that in many cases, they're developing machines that can either support frail seniors or can, can um, provide them some companionship. Uh, and some of the companionship they provide is very rudimentary. I met a, you know, the creator of a of a seal. It, it's shaped like a like a baby seal. It's called Pero Pero, the therapeutic seal. And and this device, this robotic device, it's very simple. Um, you you can teach it the name you want to bestow upon it, and once you do, you call it by its name, and it turns to face you. It makes it makes little cooing noises, and people with dementia. Uh, are attracted to it, and they stop sunsetting. You know, they they stay awake during the day. They sleep at night. They're more engaged. They're less likely to watch the television. Um, I see a great potential for robots, for therapeutic robots, to be patient and answer the same questions that people with dementia ask over and over and over again. Where human beings roll their eyes and they get annoyed. Uh, so, so I, I, I actually see a great future for, for robots. I'm not scared by it. I also discovered something else that human beings will project onto robots all kinds of characteristics, human characteristics. And, and so it isn't necessary that a robot perfectly simulate empathy. Some of them will, but, but, but human beings will more than meet the robot halfway more than meet the robot halfway and will become attached to robots. Now, you know, if that means that they are no longer willing or interested in human companionship, I think that would be sad. However, for those who don't have ready access because of mobility issues, um, you know, I'll ask you, is it better for them to be completely alone and lonely or have the companionship of someone or something? And, What's really interesting, as you point out, is the idea that the way we relate to machines is also culturally based. For example, yes. the Japanese, as I learned, are are far more open to this sort of relationship that you discussed that's maybe not quite as deep as we might think. Absolutely. Whereas Americans that, are, that have a hard time. a very profound difference. Of course, you know, the, the – uh, when we think of robots, we think of the Terminator. We think of uh, the War of the Worlds. We think of, we right. think of computers um, and and uh, and robots and androids rising up and defeating humans and, and imprisoning them or destroying them. But but the you know, Japanese uh, people uh, believe that robots have souls, just as they believe that inanimate objects, a rock, a piece of paper, a table, has soul has a soul. And they call that Sonsaiken. And, and uh, anybody who saw the film Castaway, in which Tom Hanks had a, mm -hmm. a relationship with a volleyball that he named Wilson, um, understands what, what, what they're talking about there. We project those characteristics onto inanimate objects, but, but they go one step further. They actually believe that the human beings that created that table, if it's a tabletop, that some essence of that person remains in the inanimate object. Uh, and, and, you know, I, th I think that, that 
you don't necessarily have to agree with that, but it's certainly fascinating that different countries, the different cultures have different relationships to to robots. And and you know, there is no question that they are not as weirded out by the prospect of of a robot companion as people in other Western countries, you know, Canada, the United States, uh, countries in the European Union uh, would feel in instead. Keeping in line with this issue of the future and technology, I love to think about what are the characteristics that should define the next generation of physician. In other words, how should we be choosing our medical students? And I couldn't help but thinking when I was reading about all the stuff you went through with the functional MRI, should we be, this sounds crazy, but should we be choosing doctors in the future based upon some functional analysis that pulls out some of the characteristics that we that we need or foresee in the future? That is a very dangerous question. Uh, it's an intriguing <laughs> one. I would say that the science isn't there yet. Uh, I, I I think that, and you know, as Phil Jackson, uh, the the neuroscientist who who did my functional MRI and interpreted it, said to me, "This is not an empathy calculator yet. It may be uh, down the road, and perhaps if it is, uh, then maybe it it you know once it's validated, it might be something to think about." Uh, as 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 uh, as a, a legitimate form of assessment, um, you know, I, I think that that it's fair to ask uh, some other questions. Are we sure that we don't want a psychopath to be in the health professions? Um, do we even know what makes a good uh, physician, a good surgeon, or? Uh, or, or an emergency physician, or an OBGYN, or a nurse, or a uh, uh, or a social worker, or any other health professional. Um, wow! W- one of the things that that, that I found out uh, is, is that paramedics have in abundance a characteristic known as fearless dominance. Fearless dominance is a characteristic, and and they're risk takers, and 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 th- this is one of the core characteristics of successful psychopaths. And let's not forget, there's not just the psychopaths who end up in jail. There's the psychopaths who end up as orchestra conductors and as CEOs and uh, performers. So, so you know, what you're asking is at the tip of an iceberg and what's underneath the surface are some very, very complicated questions. What is the, the right mixture of people that, 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 that we should be, uh, you know, what's the right mixture of personality characteristics that, 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 that would make an ideal physician? I suspect, you know, a wise colleague of mine said, when it comes to diagnosis, there's many ways to bake a cake. And I suspect there's many different flavors of different, uh, you know, a soup zone of this and a sprinkle of that, 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 that adds up to a, a great health professional. And we're not sure what all those, those combinations are. Uh, so, so I, I, I think that I'm going to leave that to a bit of mystique, uh, and you know, I, I, I think it's fair to look for budding health professionals who have at least some proclivity to put themselves in the place of their patients and, and hypothesize what it's like to be them. I'll also tell you something else too, Brian. Um, the older I get and the more experienced I get, the more I value patients and families and their experience and what they can bring to bear in making healthcare better. You know, for instance, um, if it weren't for patients and family members talking about PTSD symptoms, you know, following a diagnosis of cancer or following uh, a stay in the intensive care unit, Health professionals would not have realized just how prevalent PTSD is among patients and family members of patients who've been critically ill. So, so that's one example. There are many others. You know, these days, uh, physicians have a devil of a time advising patients on how to taper off of antidepressants. Patients, it turns out, have turned to each other, and the lay literature and you know lay websites are far better, provide far more useful information on how to taper, how to micro taper off of, off of antidepressants compared to the, the advice that has been given traditionally by physicians 
uh, to patients who are trying to discontinue uh, um, uh, antidepressants. So as I look to the future, I see more of a partnership between patients and family members in, in more of a state of mutual empathy. And, uh, and I think it'll be to the betterment of, of healthcare, to diagnosis, and to therapeutics. I would agree. The patient empowerment movement has really done so much as far as helping us redefine what we do as physicians. And uh, it's a great thing to see. So many great points you've made up uh, here, Brian, in the past few minutes. I could go on go on all uh, all day here, but how do people learn more about you? Uh, as I said in the introduction, you are uh, the host of the popular radio program on uh, Canada's CBC Radio 1, White Coat Black Art. Where should people find you or hear more of all the insight that you have? Um, you can visit my website, drbriangoldman.com, and that's D-O-C-T-O-R, Brian Goldman, Brian with an I. So drbriangoldman.com. Uh, my Twitter feed is at NightShiftMD. Uh, the CBC uh, website is cbc.ca slash whitecoat, one word. Good. It has been a real pleasure talking with you, Brian. It's clear from your radio show and your three best-selling books that you are truly a gifted translator of so many of the things that we're experiencing in medicine. The book, The Power of Kindness, uh, is such a timely book given the changes we're currently experiencing in healthcare. And as you suggest in the introduction, it's not a book about me, it's a book about us. Thank you for being in the exam room. This show is made possible in part by the Social Health Institute. Through research and partnerships with healthcare organizations around the country, the Social Health Institute explores new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategy. To learn more about the Social Health Institute, Visit them online at socialhealthinstitute.com. That's socialhealthinstitute.com. Thank you for joining us in the exam room. If you like what you heard here, please rate the program, review us, or let folks know about us. And if you have any really cool ideas that you'd like discussed here, please feel free to let us know. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.